So this morning we're here to talk about women in Islam and Christianity and specifically women, womanhood in Islam and in Christianity. A lot of the time when you hear about um, you hear people speaking about women in Islam and Christianity. Usually, the conversation comes down to one about which which faith is more damaging to women. Is it Islam or is it Christianity? So sometimes people bring up uh, the submission passages in Ephesians five, and they po- they point to that and say, "Well, Christianity is more damaging to." Uh, women because of Ephesians 5 and Christians will sometimes turn around and say well look at Surah 4 Surah 4 says that that men excel women in those sorts of things and sometimes it becomes a discussion that's just centered on one religion beating the other religion in terms of those troubling passages if you will Um, I don't want to necessarily do that today I don't want to take a look at Christianity and Islam in an attempt to find out which faith is worse off when it comes to its treatment of women. What I want to do is to talk about what each faith says about womanhood and Christianity and Islam. So I want to take a look at those troubling passages that I mentioned, but I also want to take a look at the teachings, the normative teachings. We're not really here to speak about how Christians have treated women throughout history, and we're not necessarily here to speak about how Muslims have treated women, even though I think that an argument can be made that um, the things that we read about on the news and the things that we hear about are very much sourced in the Quran and that perhaps the ones who are more fundamentalist in their treatment of women are doing exactly what the Quran says to do. But outside of that discussion, I really want to take a look at the text because texts are normative for faith and practice. As Christians, we don't we don't think that Christianity is based on how Christians act, right? Because sometimes Christians act in ways that aren't becoming of what Christianity teaches. In the same way, we can't necessarily take a look at at Muslims and say that because Muslims are acting like this, Islam teaches this. We actually have to go to the text and find out what the texts say um, because texts in any religion are normative for faith and practice. Make sense? So what I want to focus on today as points of discussion are three issues in particular. I want to talk about woman in creation. I want to talk about woman in marriage and woman in relation to men. Of course, what it means and what it is to be a woman falls outside of the scope of these three things. But um, Islam teaches something very certain about creation, marriage, and relationships to men, as well as Christianity does. And so in that way, we can kind of take a look at what the texts say and what the text teaches. As I say in all of my talks, I've crafted some time at the very end for uh, questions and answers, but you don't have to wait till the very end. If you want to add something, if you have a question, if you want to um, maybe talk a little bit more of some of the things that I've said, or even some of the things that you've heard or the things that you know, then definitely don't wait till the end to do that. So one would think that in speaking about Islam's treatment of women that all we need to do is open the Quran. But that's not necessarily the case. How many of you know that there there are more texts in Islam than just the Quran? You've heard of the other texts as well. What are those other texts? Hadith. 
You have the Hadith, you have the Sunnah, you have Tafsir, you have different texts. And I'll get、um, more into the reason why that's so. But that is just to say that when we're taking a look at how Islam,、uh, Islam's doctrines and its treatment of women, we have to go to more than just the Quran. The Quran, for those of you who don't know, is their revealed text, right? So, as tradition says,、uh, Muhammad was meditating in a cave one day and he received a visitation from Jibreel, the angel Gabriel, who told him to recite. For those of you who are in Thomas's class yesterday, Quran means recitation. So, over the space, as tradition says, over the space of 23 years, Muhammad received revelations. At some points, he thought what he was demonically possessed, but nevertheless, the revelations that he received were written down by his followers, and what was written down is constituted as the Quran today. Okay? The Quran as a book is very disheveled and very disorganized. If any of you have attempted to read the Quran, you'll know exactly what I say when it's probably one of the most confusing books ever to be written. And that's why there are other texts that are necessary in Islam. Because without those other texts in Islam, no one knows what the Quran means. And so, where the Quran is perhaps just the skeleton of Islamic doctrine, the other texts. Texts provide the context, the meat and bones, if you will. So you have the hadith, which are commentaries.、Um, there are six commentaries in Islam, two of which are authoritative. You will sometimes, if you're in these discussions, you'll hear Muslims say that that's a weak hadith. We don't, we don't count that. That doesn't mean anything. What they're referring to, and I won't get into the chain of Isnads, but what they're referring to is this idea that there are some hadith that carry more weight than other hadith. And so the hadith that carry the most weight in Islam come from two commentators, Bukhari and Muslim.、Um, And that's all that I'll say about that. So, suffice to say that the hadith are necessary to understand the Quran in Islam. But the conundrum is this in Islamic theology, the hadith are not revealed scriptures. Only the Quran is revealed, right? So, only the Quran is a book of the recitations that Muhammad、um, told his people, to, his followers, to write. Only the Quran is that. But the Quran makes no sense without the Hadith, and the Hadith themselves are not revealed. So you see that there's a, a conundrum within Islam、uh, when it comes to their text. But again, that all points to this idea that by itself, the so called revelations from Allah are quite confusing, right? So let me say something as caveats, if you will, to the discussion. There's a sense, I think, in which Islam assumes too much about the West, and in some sense, the West assumes too much about Muslims. So, Islam assumes of the West that we all live the life of the Kardashians. You know what I mean? Islam assumes that the West is. 
a Judeo-Christian West, but it's characterized by the values of Hollywood and the Kardashians. And so a lot of the antagonism today, if you will listen to, not necessarily the news, but if you'll listen to some of the things that are coming out of the mouths of Muslims themselves, they, they are opposed to the West because of what they think is the immorality that characterizes Judeo-Christianity. Right, whereas we as Christians would say, actually, the Kardashian mentality, we have a problem with that too because that's not actually not what Christianity is at all. So, and again, media has a role to play in this and sound bites and um, all of those other things that one could pick up. But in, uh, suffice to say that Islam is at war with the West because of what they perceive as immorality that's sourced in Judeo-Christianity. Islam teaches that um, that Muhammad was the last and final prophet. Muhammad supersedes all of the teachings in some sense of Jesus and such. That's a, a huge um, assumption of the West. But we in the West assume a lot about the East as well. We assume in the West that all Muslims are fundamentalists. All Muslims belong to ISIS. All Muslims do barbaric things. That's an assumption on our part. It's definitely not true. But I'll say this too. A lot of um, times my the hair on the back of my neck bristles because there's this common thing in the culture that Islam is a religion of peace. We've all heard that. We've all heard uh, people say that there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, and of those 1.6 billion, the majority of them are peaceful and loving Muslims, and we ought not to lump everyone into the same boat. You've heard that, right? Okay. That's quite true that the majority of Muslims in the world are not what we would characterize as fundamentalist and, and radical and ISIS-related. That's quite true. But... 1.6 billion of anything is a large number, right? So what if there are 1.6 billion Muslims and just a percentage of them are fundamentalists, 1% one, 1 of 1.6 billion is several million, right? So it's quite true, and the estimates are that between 10 and 15% are radicalized. So let's say 80% of all Muslims in the world are peace-loving, quite true. But 15% of 1.6 billion is quite a lot of Muslims that are radicalized, right? So the soundbite that the majority of Muslims in the world are peace-loving, therefore don't talk about us is a contentless claim because the number of Muslims in the world who are radicalized are large enough to do a lot of damage and we've seen that we, we, we see what they're doing right So I said something about the Hadith. The Hadith are collections of the sayings and deeds of Muhammad. The Sunnah, they represent the example of Muhammad, how Muhammad lived his life. So in Islam, Muhammad is the highest exemplar. Everyone is, is ascribing to live the type of life that Muhammad lived. Uh, the same is true in Christianity to some extent. Christians aren't trying to be like Jesus and everything because Jesus was God and there's no way for us to be like him, but he is the highest example and he's our great teacher. That distinction is there. Um, now, Islam doesn't teach us that Jesus was 
divine though and so Islam uh, teaches that Muhammad was a man and therefore every man has the ability to do exactly what he did when he walked the earth which is why uh, in Pakistan when a certain regime was, I believe it was Pakistan when a certain regime got to power that was very fundamentalist they lowered the marrying age to nine do you know why? He, Muhammad married a six-year-old and consummated with her when she was nine and he was 54. But him being the highest exemplar in Islam, they're trying to be exactly like him. And so these are the reasons that we have to be concerned about Islam. And we have to be concerned about people who take the text seriously. So when you read the um, newspapers, perhaps, and you watch the, the news shows, you don't hear people talking about the text of Islam. You hear people talking about the peace-loving Muslims, and you hear about the people who are vocally um, vocally responding to ISIS, but no one is talking about the text. And the reason why no one is talking about the text is because the texts are quite damning and damaging to all. Uh, and so it's my contention, and this is why I started the talk out that way, that we have to focus on text. Our, our concern isn't so much... Our concern is people because they have practical relevance to how you live your life. But at the end of the day, there's a text that we have to be concerned about because the texts are always normative for faith and practice in any revealed religion. Same is true in, Mor in Mormonism. They have revealed texts as well, and they follow the text. So it's in our best interest to know what those texts say. I said something about Bukhari and Muslim already. Of the six commentators in Islam, the two, Muslim and Bukhari, are the most authoritative. I'll say something about the Isnads. The Isnads are the, tra the chain of transmission. Have we heard about the Isnads before? Okay, so because, and I'll contrast a little bit Christianity and Islam here when it comes to the revealed text. Because in Islam it said, tradition says that Muhammad was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. And so all he could do was recite the revelations that he received. And the, the people who followed him wrote those down. Now, a lot of people wrote different things down and there was no way to adjudicate which was authentic and which was not authentic. Like I said, there are six commenta commentaries, six commentators who wrote things down to explain what the Quran said. So what they came up with is an isnad, which is the tra chain of transmission. If someone who was close to Muhammad, say a wife of Muhammad, or say a close companion of Muhammad, if they wrote something down and said Muhammad said it, then that carried more weight than someone who heard from a friend of a cousin that Muhammad said this. So the people who were closest to Muhammad are said to be the ones who had the greater um, respect in terms of authenticity of the text. And the chain of Isnads is, and they call it a science, but the chain of Isnads is essentially a way of authenticating which sayings are authentic and which sayings are not authentic. Those are the, That's the Isnads. Now that's not the case in Christianity. We have no chain of Isnads, and why is that? I'm sorry? 
Right. We have the complete revelation. I'll go a little uh, bit further. This is on um, my other slide. Arabic as a language had been an oral language up until that time. The Quran is the first book to be written in Arabic. And so when these things were written down by the followers, the language was still evolving. They were still trying to capture how to symbolize certain intonations, right? So Arabic being a new written language had been an oral language for for a long time, but Arabic being a language that for the first time was written down, those who wrote as tradition says, those who wrote down what Muhammad said were still trying to grapple with how to capture it. And so that's why there have been and there still are a lot of different Qurans running around in Arabic because the language changed. And that's not the case in our faith because Greek, Hebrew, they had been written languages for a while. And so what was written down, there was no need to change or no need to add a diacritical marking because it had already been a written language. Make sense? Um, if you were in Adam's, um, not Adam's, if you were in Thomas's talk yesterday, he was explaining that there has been a recent um, a recent. I guess watershed in Quranic manuscripts and they found older manuscripts that don't look anything like the other manuscripts. There are two recensions in Islamic uh, history and recensions meaning there were two instances in which they gathered all of the Qurans that were not uh, consistent with the one that they wanted to go with. They gathered all of the Qurans and they burned them all. So how can you test for authenticity if you've gotten rid of the evidence, right? But they actually didn't burn them all, and that's why we're kind of finding these things out today. Some of them stuck around. Um, and so that's the difference between Islam and Christianity when it comes to the written text. Christianity follows a tradition in which the language had already come to its maximal, maximal evolution, uh, if you will, in terms of the original, in terms of the original languages. Such is not the case in Islam. Islam was evolving and Islam uh, was developing and that was very much tied to their codification of language and how words are supposed to represent different things. Make sense? So here's the rub then. The hadith and the commentaries are an attempt to grapple with what the prophet meant, not with what he said. Because the prophet and our prophet didn't write anything down, but they knew what he meant because they had words to capture what he said. Whereas in Islam, they don't know when Muhammad died, all they were left with what he said and they were trying to capture words to figure out what he meant by them. So we have we have commentaries, we have a, a plethora of documents that come to us in church history that say things about our written text, right? We have the church fathers, we have uh, early church writings, we have all of those documents as well. But all of the documents that we appeal to as Christians, we those documents appeal to written texts. 
and the Hadith and the Sunnah do not appeal to a written text. They, re- repeal, they appeal to an oral tradition that they were trying to codify into language. Do you, do you get the distinction that I'm trying to make? So Islam, um, by definition, written Islam is evolving because language is evolving. There is no such evolution in uh, early in Christianity because language had already been codified, the written language, yes. So if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is that um, the commentaries like Matthew Henry and those, we can read the commentaries, but we have the book to read it so that we can evaluate what the commentaries are commentating on. Exactly. Whereas in an oral tradition, the man is dead. There's no way to verify the commentary to the words that were spoken. So you almost have to have a blind faith. Exactly. No evidentiary value. Because oil is lost the minute the ear stops hearing it. That is it. That's exactly it. You have a situation where you're trying to figure out what did Muhammad mean when he said this? That's, that's the question. What did Muhammad mean when he said this? And the best two people uh, on record, according to the, the commentaries, the best two people to appeal to would be what Bukhari said and what Muslim said, Muslim said. But there's no guarantee that that's what Muhammad really meant because he's gone. So with all that as a preamble... <laughs> We can now get into uh, the topic again. We're talking about womanhood in Islam and Christianity. So now we can go to the text to see what the texts teach about womanhood. Only in these three contexts, because I think that they're quite telling. Only woman in creation, marriage, and relation to men. Although those are not the only three contexts with which to understand what it means to be a woman. I think they're quite telling. So, woman and creation. So, in Christianity, we have a creation account, right? So, in uh, Christianity, says that God made all the animals, God made man, man didn't want to be alone, so God created a suitable helper for him. We know the creation story, right? So, in Christianity, Eve is a special creation, says that God built Eve and brought her to the man and the two became one. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they sh- We understand. In Islam, there is no such account. There's no creation account as such. Actually, in Islam, it teaches that Adam and Eve were in paradise and that when the fall happened, they were cast down to the earth as punishment. That's what Islam teaches about it. But over and above that, Eve is not a special creation in Islam. Eve, uh, the creation, um, the creation references in the Quran are quite varied. Um, Thomas mentioned uh, yesterday that in one passage, uh, Adam was made from, man was made from a blood clot. In other passages, it says, a man emerged from water. The, the Quran, suffice to say, is confusing. But there is no creation account in Islam wherein Eve is a special creation. So right off the top then, and, and Christianity, to go a little bit further, teaches that man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. Both man and woman are told to have dominion and to rule the earth. 
we know that that's what that's absent in Islamic theology. So you have a situation in which right off the top in Christianity there is a level of value given to women that's absent in Islam. Islam, what does that mean? The word, what does Islam mean? Islam means submission. Islam means submission. And so what it means to be a good Muslim is very much tied to how well you submit. A good woman in Islam is one who submits well to her father, to, um, we would call them pastors, but to their leaders one who submits well to the men in her household. That's what it means to be a good Islam, a good Muslim um, in Islam. Whereas in Christianity, we would say that our value doesn't come from how well you submit. It comes from the fact that you're made in the image and the likeness of God. That's where your value comes from. And as we get over into the more philosophical aspect of this point, we're going to see why right off the top there, there's a certain amount of value inherent in Christianity. Christianity that's not present in Islam. And all of that is sourced in the fact that the creation in the creation account, there is no value given to Eve other than the value that comes from how well she submits. So one of the most damaging um, references in the surah to the value of womanhood comes from surah 4. Surah in, in the Quran is what we would refer to as a chapter in the Bible and uh, an ayat is what we would refer to as a verse. So in surah 4, ayat 34, it talks about men being in charge of women for two reasons. Number one, because they excel women. And number two, it's because they're the financial providers for women. So it's quite clear in the Quran that there is a pecking order when it comes to the superiority of men over women, and that's because they excel women. They're stronger than women is what it says. And the second is because they financially provide for women. That's what makes, that's the value distinction. There is no such value distinction in Christianity. Now, in Christianity, men are called to be providers, but that's not because they excel women. It's because God, God has made it so that there's a, an order that's not based on value. It's an order that's based on um, functional differences. And I'll talk about that. Now, I want to say, let me go to this slide first. So you all have probably seen this slide before. Um, this is the picking out of the value distinctions in Islam based on their philosophy of what it means to have uh, value as a woman. So in the top left corner, we have a picture of a spoon. Now you can look at things philosophically, you can, you can define things in two types of ways. You can define things by the function that they serve, or you can define things but what, by what they actually are. And so in the picture of a spoon, a spoon is the sort of thing that we define functionally. A, f a spoon is only a spoon because it helps us eat soup well. In the absence of a spoon helping us eat soup well, 
it's not a good spoon. It's probably just a piece of metal that you want to use for, for some other function. A spoon, it can be used, it can be used as, as other things. A spoon can honestly be a weapon if you want to, but a spoon, the purpose of a spoon is to help us eat soup well. That is different from looking at a thing essentially and not functionally. So in the bottom right corner, we have a picture of a dog. A dog is not a dog because it does certain things. A dog is not a dog because it chases cats or it's not a dog because it eats uh, meat. A dog is not a dog because it barks. A dog is a dog because it has a canine nature. And if it didn't bark, if it didn't chase cats, if it didn't eat big slabs of meat, it would still be a dog because a dog is what it is, not because of the functions that it's able to accomplish. It's because of its nature. Its nature guides what it is as a thing. And so in the context of womanhood in Islam, they have a functional view of what it means to be a woman. A woman is someone who submits well. A good woman is someone who takes care of home well. A good woman is someone who does what the prophet teaches. Whereas in Christianity, we would say what it means to be a valuable woman has to do with her nature. She has a human nature. And the human nature is the thing that confers value on her. This is the thing that's in the, this is a good way to kind of parse out different issues that are happening in the culture. So in the abortion debate, there's a fundamental difference between functionality and essential essentiality when it comes to the unborn. And those who are pro-abortion see the unborn in a functional type of way. That if you can't do a certain amount of things, if you don't have a certain amount of brain cortical activity, if you don't have a certain amount of self-awareness, they say that you're not human. We've heard that, right? They say you're only a glob of cells. You can't do certain things, and therefore, you don't have any value. That's the thrust of the abortion debate, right? Whereas in Christianity, we would say that the unborn are fully human because they've got a human nature, and the human nature is the thing that confers value. And this is why we would say that there is no difference between the unborn and the toddler and the adolescent and the senior citizen. All of them have a human nature that confers value. And if it's appropriate to terminate a life because it doesn't have a certain set of functions as an unborn person, then it would also follow that it's appropriate to terminate life after it's born if it doesn't have functions that people ascribe. Does that make sense? They're working on it. Hmm? They're working on it. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, you look at what's happening with our elderly. There are people that are looking at functionality of, of elderly. Mm-hmm. So, we can excuse killing them inside the womb. Let's see what we can do at the end of the line. Of course, everything proceeds to where it's just going to be, well, my son won't mow my yard. That's it. And uh, in Canada, I'm from Canada, they just um, they just passed, they've, they've always had euthanasia in Canada. There's always been doctors that have been willing to do that. But it's just become legalized that euthanasia is legal in Canada. So the same arguments for abortion are the very same arguments for euthanasia. The very same arguments for abortion 
abortion and euthanasia can be used for people who are in comas. Because when you're in a coma, you don't have a certain amount of brain cortical activity. When you're in a coma, you don't have a certain amount of bodily functions. But we wouldn't then say that it's okay to terminate. All of us slept last night, right? And when we went to sleep, we didn't have a certain amount of brain cortical activity. We wouldn't then say that it's okay to terminate. So the abortion debate and euthanasia debate are clearly not logical or rational um, issues that are based on um, good thinking. There, there are other things going on, but suffice to say that they can be thought about in this way when you consider looking at things functionally and when you consider looking at things essentially. And in Christianity and Islam, their view of women comes down to the functional way of looking at women in Islam versus the essential way of looking at women in Christianity. Absolutely. And you can just take a very good look throughout human history and see that all of the tragedies and all of the things that we would refer to as moral evils come down to this issue. Um, when it comes to uh, slavery in the U.S., that's the same thing. When it comes to what Hitler did and Stalin did and all these different things, people are defining one's worth by your ability to do a certain thing. And in the absence of that, then we, we see what has happened throughout history. So our job and our goal as rational people is to get people to ponder this idea that what you do has nothing to do with it. It has to do with who you are as a person. It makes it easy for the husband, if she's not functioning, wants to get rid of Yep. And we'll see that. We'll see. That's that's actually one of the the strong criticisms uh, that are alleged against Islam is for that reason. In the absence of filling, fulfilling a function, if, if you're going to be a functionalist, in the absence of fulfilling a function, you're no longer needed or necessary. You can just get someone else to fulfill the function. If if one persists in thinking that the function of something is the thing that grounds value. That's not Christianity. That's not theism. I say that's not Christianity. I can't say that that's theism because Islam is a monotheistic faith. So that's woman in creation, womanhood in creation when it comes to Islam and Christianity. Again, we're talking about the revealed text. We're not talking about what Muslims do, and we can have that discussion later, but we're talking about the revealed text and what the revealed texts tell us in terms of the normative um, value that it has for practice. So let's take a look at marriage. God's design for monogamy, one man, one wife, it isn't devoid of spiritual meaning. And by that, I mean to say that when you go through the New Testament and, and you read, you get the idea that there's something very spiritual about marriage, right? It's a, it calls um, that we are the bride of Christ, Right? We are the church is the bride of Christ. The um, Christ is the head of the church. God's um, Christ is the head of the church. We are the bride of the Christ. And at the end, 
God is going to call his bride to himself. We, we get that imagery as we read the New Testament. So in New Testament theology, marriage is not devoid of spiritual meaning. Um, in Ephesians 5, there are reasons to think that a biblical marriage, that it pictures in some way the relationship between Christ and the church, as I said. Um, in the Old Testament, marriage is a uniting act. So in Genesis, you, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one. Both of them are equal but there is a leaving and the two become one to live life together as equal beings in a partnership. That's Christian theology. That's biblical theology. That is absent in Islam. On the accounting of the Quran, marriage is pictured as a sort of practical if not financial arrangement that's what the Quran pictures that as whereas Muslims see it that way that's a separate question but the Quran itself pictures marriage in that way so when we were speaking about uh, Surah 434 and uh, it was said that men excel women and it was said that men are the financial protectors of women. That is the, the template for marriage in Islamic teaching, in Quranic teaching. So there's this issue of polygamy. We've all heard the issue of polygamy within Islam, right? Where it says in the Quran that men are permitted to take up to four wives. Permitted to take up to four wives, not because... He loves the four women, but because he has the financial wherewithal to take care of four women. Uh, polygamy is in the scriptures too, but not as a prescription, as it's there as a description of what happens. So just because you see something in the biblical text, it doesn't mean that it's taught. It could just be in the text because that's actually what happened. But monogamy, um, this idea of one man, one woman, that is a prescription in biblical teaching. That's what God taught. Afterwards, people took on different wives, David, Solomon, and all of those. But those aren't prescriptive. So no one can... No one who's actually authentic to the text, no Christian who's actually authentic to the text can say that the Bible teaches polygamy because it's clear that the Bible teaches monogamy and polygamy happened for reasons that can be spoken about. That's not the same in Islam. And Islam prescribes polygamy if a man is able to financially provide for the woman. Because again, in Islam, it's not so much a love relationship. Islam is submission, right? So a good woman in Islam is someone who submits to the men in her life well. But a good man in Islam is someone who submits to Allah well. So if Allah has said that up to four can be permitted, one can feasibly submit to that as a man and be a good Muslim. And this doesn't have anything to do with the type of love relationship that we see pictured between Christ and the church and between a man and a woman in biblical theology. Now that isn't to say that Muslim marriages are loveless marriages. I'm not saying that all men in Islam treat women 
um, poorly and that they are all degraded as that's that's not my point because I'm not talking about individual Muslims I'm talking about what the Quran teaches so the Quran pictures marriage as a loveless um, act that's based on provision but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what happens in in real life if you've just to maintain those distinctions So here's another, Surah 4 is the, the woman chapter in the Quran. So a lot of the, a lot of the um, critiques that can be leveled against Islam, they'll come out of Surah 4 primarily, but there are other passages as well. So I'll be going back to Surah 4 quite often when I speak about uh, Islam's, Islamic theology and its, its um, treatment of women. In Surah 4 and 3 it says, If you fear that you shall not be able to deal justly with the orphans. Marry women of your choice, two or three or four. But if you fear that you shall be not be able to deal justly, then only one or a captive that your right hand possesses. It'll, this will be more suitable to prevent you from doing injustice. So I thought that this surah was quite telling. I don't know if you can read the aspects of that that I have in the red print. But we have to understand what, what's going on here. So at this time in Muslim history, Muslims were very much, they were a, a nomadic group of people, right? They were nomads and they were uh, going throughout the Arabian Peninsula. They were trying to get land, that type of life. So there were many instances, and this is, on just, this is just a matter of history, there were many instances in, in which they would uh, take land and they would take the women and children as slaves and kill the men. This is common throughout nomadic history. This is kind of what happened. But then we see that Muhammad is, this is a revelation, he says, if you're not able to deal justly with those you have captured, then marry them, is what Muhammad says. He says that you can take two or three or four, but if you shall not be able to deal justly, then only take one, or take a captive, take a slave girl, essentially. That'll be more suitable to prevent you from doing injustice. So, my question is this, what unjust dealings do you think that marrying would have corrected? Accusation of the act. Mm-hmm. It could have it could have been taken into account rape as well, right? So if these are if these are women that have been captured, and Muhammad is saying, "Listen, I want you to deal justly with these women, so therefore marry them." Obviously, Muhammad is saying that in order to because as a woman, she, she essentially belongs to the men. The men are the financial providers and protectors of women in Islam. So in Quranic teaching, women belong to men in the sense that they are, they are taken care of by their men. And so as a married woman, you belong to your husband in a way that a slave girl wouldn't. But if that slave girl becomes a wife, then he can deal with her as a wife. 
And so it's quite interesting that Muhammad is making, uh, he's making room for the men to marry their slaves. Again, these are women who have witnessed their brothers and their fathers being killed. These women are then married to the Muslim men who have killed. So this is not a voluntary, this is not a happy-go-lucky type of arrangement. This is a situation where Muhammad is commanding them to marry the women so that they can deal with them as wives and appropriately as wives, appropriately being in quotes. Any questions? So like I said before, the ground of having many wives in Quranic teaching, the ground is not love. The ground seems to be financial maintenance, and Surah 434 says as such. Surah number 2, 23, your wives are as a tilth unto you, so approach your tilth when or how you will. So, um, it's interesting because a lot of those who are Muslim apologists, who are women, they will take this verse and they'll say, see, this verse teaches that women are precious and that women are valuable. A tilth in Islam is a fertile piece of land. That's what a tilth is in Islam. And so, in 2.23, they point to this verse and say that this verse is teaching that women are valuable and they should be cared for in the very same way that land is valuable and should be cared for. That's the argument. But that's an interesting argument because a tilth being a fertile piece of land is only good for two things. Land is... Land is an aspect of ownership, right, in these times. Those who had more land, they were, they were more prestigious. Land was a measure of one's uh, riches and one's status in society. So to be compared to a tilth, and tilth being a piece of land, to be compared as something that adds status to one's position, that's a little bit troubling. Um, if you ascribe to being a trophy wife. I mean, that's the only analogy analogy that follows from that. But more than that, land is only valuable because it yields a good harvest. Land is only valuable because of the function that it serves. And in the absence of fulfilling that function, land is not valuable. Land, no farmer just has land just to say, I have a piece of land. He expects the land to produce a harvest for him. And so to look at this verse as something that gives value to women is not, it, that doesn't make sense because we've already talk, talk, spoken about the functional aspect of womanhood in Islam. If she cooks well, if she takes care of house well, if she bears children well, that is the value that she has in Islam. And without those functions, and this goes to your point, in the absence of those functions, there is no value that being compared to a piece of land bestows on womanhood. So let's talk about marriage and Christianity. Understanding that there's a fundamental difference between the functional uh, way of viewing woman and the essential view of looking at woman. Those two things are clear between the faiths. But let's take a look at what Christianity teaches about marriage. Um, Ephesians 5, 21 to 25. 
It says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. But as the subject, as the as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives should be subject to their husbands and everything. And usually Muslims stop right there. They don't read the following verse. The following verse says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so in Ephesians, in New Testament theology, number one, and this goes to the point that I made earlier, marriage is a love interaction as opposed to a financial interaction. But marriage is also pictured to my previous point as something that's quite spiritual and something that's quite divine. Marriage is different in Christianity because men are called to be and walk as Christ walked in terms of providing, in terms of loving, in terms of being responsible for that which he produces, namely children. So and all of the and this goes to saying that there are functions that are given to men functions given to women in marriage that come from um, and this goes to the talk that I made yesterday. There are just differences between men and women that, when put together, create a flourishing, if you will. But all of that is based on love. It's not based on submission. It's not based on uh, differences in value. It's all based on love. In First Peter, if someone has um, a Bible and can turn to First Peter 3 and 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weakest vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. So it's so serious. Um, marriage is so serious that it's essentially saying in First Peter 3, 7, that if a husband does not do right by her, his wife, he can't, his prayers won't even be heard by God. So marriage is not the sort of thing in Christian theology where it's a free fall a free for all for the man to do anything. We're talking about Christian men, not just men, but we're talking about men who have who ascribe to certain Christian ideals. Uh, that is absent in new te- in the Islamic teaching, Islamic theology. I'll say that um, there are some troubling passages in the New Testament. So, and we've all heard of this one, 1 Corinthians 14 and 34. If someone can turn down. Troubling, I said in air quotes. First Corinthians 14, 34. If you could read that when you have them. Okay. So that's something that people pick up on. Women are to be silent in the church. Women aren't supposed to speak. But let me say something about uh, the context. So literally that word silent, it doesn't mean silence proper. It means to give a certain level of respect to someone who's teaching you something. So for instance, I'm here and I'm teaching before you this morning. You all are being silent 
not because you are less valuable than me, but there's a certain level of respect that you give to someone who's teaching you, right? When Pastor Jeremy is is preaching from the pulpit, you all are in the pews and you're silent, not because you have less value than Pastor Jeremy, it's because you give him a certain level of respect as someone who's teaching you. In school, it's the same thing. There's a certain level of value that students ought to give to their teachers, right? So that's what the New Testament is talking about. It's not just saying to women, don't be don't say anything in church. That same word silence is used in other parts of that same chapter. In verse 28 and in verse 30, the word silent is used and it's not the object of that silence. It's not women. First Corinthians is a book that is concerned with church order, right? From the start to the beginning, First Corinthians is a book that is centered on teaching the people how to conduct themselves when they come together as a body of believers. So it's not a book that teaches that women should be silent. It's a book that teaches order. Um, uh, it's the same word that's used in Acts 12.17. If someone could go to Acts 12.17 and another to Luke 18.35. Acts 12:17 Luke 18:39 and you can read it when you have it Okay, so motioning with his hand for them to be silent, that's the same word used. Uh, Luke 18, 39. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet and he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. All right, told them to be quiet, that's the same word. So I say all of that to say that. This word silence is often levied by those who uh, oppose our scriptures. It's often levied as an instance that teaches that women should not speak in the church. But the verses that we've spoken about, and again, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians is very much centered on order. And it's not a word that's just given to women. It's a word that's given to people who are in the process of learning. And again, that comes from, you can source that again in the value distinctions between men and women. Uh, In Islamic teaching, Quranic teaching, women are pictured as the sort of things that are almost childlike and need to be guided. I'm going to go to some verses in a minute. But uh, Quranic teaching, you kind of get a sense that women need to be guided, women need to be protected, women need to be provided for, women are kind of helpless. And so this teaching that um, that the, the teaching that the Muslims always levy against Christians when it comes to that word silence, again, that comes from their fundamental un- misunderstanding of what valuehood means when it comes to women in Islam. Here's another damning passage in Islamic theology. It says in 434 that husbands... If they fear insubordination or disloyalty from their wives, it says admonish them. 
if that doesn't work, it says deny them sexually. And then if that wasn't doesn't work, it says you can beat them. That's Surah 434, and that's the, known as the wife-beating passage in Islamic teaching. It's a couple things that come out of this Surah, for, surah though. Number one... If they're having issues, and I'll end here, if they're having issues with their wife, then it says admonish them, talk to her, see if you can calm her down, if you will. If that doesn't work, it says deny her sexually, which, because of the polygamy, if you deny one woman sexually, it's just supposed to be a punishment to her, but that doesn't necessarily deny the man, because he has other wives. If that doesn't work, it says beat them. Now, this is completely troubling. It's something that you will not hear uh, Muslims speaking about. They'll skirt the issue. But suffice to say here that the word beat in Arabic is the same word that's used in beating animals. So, and I do have to end here, but I hope I've said enough to say that there are distinctions between women in Islam and Christianity that are very much sourced in the text. And it's not necessarily enough to, um, to avoid the heavy issues because we see Muslims doing good things, and they ought to do good things, but our concern is always to be had with the text because the texts are always normative for faith and practice. And in that, it's to be said that Christianity definitely values women in a way that Islam doesn't. And I'll end there. Does anyone have any questions? Anything to be clarified? I know I went a little bit quickly. No? Okay. Well, you are dismissed. Thank you.